Welcome to the Banker Midweek, your weekly look at what the industry is talking about, offering information bankers like you need to know. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Banker Midweek. And today, you are hosted by, as always, Liz Lumley, Deputy Editor of The Banker. But joining us today, we have a special guest, Prakash Patney, uh, Global Managing Director for Financial Services, Digital Transformation at IBM. Hello, Prakash. How are you? Hey, Liz. Great to be here. Thank you so much. Now, it's interesting. When we started bringing outside guests to The Banker Midweek, um, we usually don't, uh, it's, it's, it's looking at current news, but I'm very glad to have you on because we're going to be talking about a lot of technology, including our Innovation and Digital Banking Awards coming up soon. So we'll have some questions on that. So as our listeners know, the Banker Midweek is our weekly discussion of stories live on the Banker site and newsy bits that will influence future stories. So we are, we're going to start off with the 2023 Innovation and Digital Banking Awards from the Banker. Um, and it was a very, of course, this is one of our largest awards. We had almost 300 submissions for 18 categories. Um, and a lot of the global banks are embracing platforms and frameworks and uh, doing large global transformation projects. And they're also working very hard to work c more closely with uh, fintech uh, partners and companies and other tech companies and looking at projects involved with artificial intelligence. And a lot of banks are also looking at uh, ways to reduce uh, their interest in carbon and looking at uh, climate action. So uh, our global winner was uh, Banco Santander for their large-scale cloud transformation, looking at, uh, I think they call it gravity. Uh, we have a number of other topics uh, regional winners for the Innovation Awards. We have also topic winners looking at cybersecurity, looking at mobile. And of course, if you want to see all the winners for the awards, you need to go to the banker site, banker.com. Um, so it's interesting. I mentioned before that a lot of the topics, a lot of the submissions to the awards this year really looked at that relationship between banks um, and fintech companies. And that's a, one of our, our favorite topics here at the Banker Podcast, and there are, of course, lots and lots of opinions um, around on um, social media and, and event stages and as we gear up to uh, going into Cybos in a few weeks uh, in Toronto. So I had a question for you. Um, what is, I mean, I've been, I'm someone who's observed this, this sort of bank fintech partnership uh, journey for a long time. I'm interested to know, like, what this, how you see the state of play now, I mean, are, 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 are we really seeing banks looking at some of these smaller companies, new entrants, as true partners, or is there still still a bit of trepidation? Or, or like, what, how, do you, how do you see the world in 2023 for innovation in banks? I mean, many of the conversations um, we're having with banks, um, you know, we know that they're already working with or wanting to work with fintechs. Um, you know, banks know that they have things like you know, customers, brand, reach, capital, but they really want to take advantage of, you know, the fintech speed, agility, and also the fact that they can focus and go really deep in, you know, one particular area. So I do think both parties really see the value that they can both bring to the relationship. And I do think um, banks really are seeing fintechs and startups as innovation partners. Now, whether they are achieving the partnership the way they want it to operate, I think is a little bit more nuanced in terms of the answer. Mm. So you know, the view of the engage of an engagement with a fintech has changed. I think a lot more 
needs to be done to make it easier for banks and fintechs to, to work together. And I can talk a bit more about that. if. Yeah, no, I'd love to because I think the two stories in that nuance, I love the word that you use there. I mean, it's like how like you can you can talk about a bank doing a pilot or a bank talking to a fintech, but how does this how does this really happen? What what are the nuances? So the fintechs I talked to, all, many of them have said to me um, that they just can't live with the, the sales cycles that are involved mm. in working with a, a large bank. It, it runs for 12, 18, sometimes 24 months. And what's you know sad is some of them have said, we on purpose have changed our strategy because we, you know, we need to, to get to that sale. We're working with neo banks and basically the competitors. So in a, in a sort of roundabout way, the, the fact that banks haven't address their processes to meet the, you know, to treat fintechs differently to other mm. large providers is driving this little bit of a shift away. And I know some banks have taken a very proactive approach and have changed the way they do it. Many others haven't. And I think it's even more um, critical when these uh, fintechs are operating in the middle and back office space where, you know, risk levels are higher, there's more regulated data, things become more complicated. So there's an element of bank processes, but there's also an element of the fintechs maybe not necessarily being familiar with the regulations, the compliance needs. Um, and so there's this little bit of a skills gap combined with this process thing, which is creating all this friction in the system. And, you know, we can talk about some things that I think could help that. But, mm. you know, th I think that's really what what needs to be addressed here if this partnership's really to, to succeed. Yeah, I think, I mean, our our CIO of the year, um, the, the bank actually created a separate entity went off in order just to do this to have that relationship with african fintechs because the you know i think we're working with the the bet the legacy bank of the, uh, it it just wasn't the right environment so they created this kind of new entity in order to expedite some of those processes we've seen that strategy with a few other banks creating that kind of separate division in order to have these relationships yeah and i i think but but i do think the fact that many of them are talking about this and they are looking at the specific friction points from how they ask questions to you know, need for three years of financial accounts. You know, often you won't have that as a startup through to you know, all of the steps you need to go through to demonstrate security and compliance that are in place. So I do think there is a move, but it just needs to go faster i mm. think to really address this this issue it's true <laughs> we need i i was on I, I did a panel a few weeks ago in singapore and someone from a bank said um speed is a choice which i thought <laughs> was very interesting <laughs> yeah you go as fast as you want to go but we're going to talk about our next story and we're going to stick with uh with the fintech here at the moment and this is from our latin american editor barbara pianese and this is mexico mexico's fintech law needs a, a shake-up so of the 650 fintechs in operation in Mexico, and it's the um, largest fintech uh, region in Latin America outside of Brazil, just 46 operate under its 2018 fintech law. And the, their 2018 fintech law classified fintech players as one of two types of entities, either an electron electronic payment fund institution or wallet and or a crowdfunding institution. Um, so this is frustrated a lot of the fintech companies operating in that region. So the, the question I wanted to get a comment from you on this and kind of, you know, global fintechs, the, this Mexico story kind of highlights a lot of the barriers that banks and fintech companies face around the globe is kind of, th there's been this long journey to understand how, how smaller companies and fintechs fit into the wider uh, financial services ecosystem. But are we are we kind of entering a, a new stage of that transformation and growth to remove some of these friction points 
um, including those that come from you know a regulatory compliance and security point of view? Are, are you seeing like a little bit of a change in attitude happening right at the moment? Yeah, I think this story is really interesting, as you say, it highlights some of the, the barriers that we, we see. And um, let me just touch on a couple of them. So mm. th there's been a view that fintechs have been under less regulatory scrutiny than some of the other entities in the financial services market. I think that's changing. So in February, I think it was, um, you know, I won't get the quote exactly right, but Janet Yellen of the US Treasury should report and stated that while fintechs have undoubtedly increased innovation, they've also, I'm paraphrasing, but said increased risk. So you know, that's an indication that there's more regulations coming. And we're also seeing um, banks using more third parties. So um, you know, there's a need for increased due diligence and monitoring that they need to do. And it's the bad actors who are increasingly targeting third and fourth parties in the supply chain to gain access to banks' data because they know it's sometimes easier to, to compromise vulnerabilities in those systems. So you know, we're seeing breaches go up. So you can see there's an upward trajectory in, in, in that the supply chain is becoming an area of focus. In Europe, there's a Digital Operational Resiliency Act increasing the focus on, mm. on third parties. So all of these things you know, are, are showing that there's an increased focus in this area. Um, but then you also touched on one of the, the, the points around the fragmentation of regulations and the mm. complexity this thing introduced, especially for multi-jurisdictional operators. So, you know, on the one hand, you have this willingness to use fintechs and startups. But on the other hand, we've seen increasing regs and, yeah. uh, you know, all of these other things. So there's a, there's a fine balancing act to perform here, you know, to get, you know, the Goldilocks solution, as it were, yeah. get enough, reg <laughs> enough regulation and friction to protect consumers, but not so much that you stifle innovation. And I think this is um, some of what we here at um, IBM have been have been thinking about is how do we how, how do we achieve that balance? And so we you know we've been working closely with the regulators mm. and set up a cloud council with fintechs and regulators and, and banks. You know really to understand what these issues are. And some of our clients have helped you know have asked us to help them remove some of these friction points. So you know we've done things like set up a program to validate these third parties. Essentially we you know we bring we do the security compliance work for the client and make sure that you know we take this burden off off the um, uh, the bank and, and do this assessment and due diligence. So I think there's definitely a regulation uh, and uh, a recognition that regulations are important. But again, you know, like we said at the start, I think more needs to be done, like we're doing to remove these friction points and, mm. and to make it much easier. So I think just try, maybe answering your question is I, I do think um, um, we are hitting that point where, again, with all these things, it's always about how important is this thing for you? to you that I'm going to focus and put resources against it. And I do start, I'm starting to see that organizations are seeing it as important enough. Mm. They are starting to put resources there. So I do think we are going to see a, a real movement in this space. It's interesting. I, li I like that term, go uh, Goldilocks region. I mean, are there any, are there any go like close to Goldilocks regions around that are, <laughs> are doing things well? Yeah, I think um, some of the um, startups that I talked to and, and, and I'm seeing a lot more focus on the venture capitalist type um, organizations well in Africa mm. and also in Middle East and in APAC and I think some of this is down to the, the lack of historical banking infrastructure the you know the the more western um, economies have followed this path of uh, branch infrastructure to, to digitize but they're, they're they're using the same they're almost like automating the existing processes versus completely starting with a complete new paradigm, you know, mm. going straight to mobile banking or mobile payments or whatever it might be. So I think I, I am seeing that, but also the, and maybe the regulations haven't had necessarily have to be as strict because those are, markets have been smaller. 
but um, again, regulations are rising, but those are the pockets where I'm seeing maybe faster growth or more willingness to um, experiment before mm. the, the regulations come in and maybe try and close it down a little bit more. It's easy. I'm going to gonna go off maybe on a tangent a bit because this is something I think about a lot. This, there's a lot of desire for you know, like a greenfield site and to, to, bu to build from scratch. And of course, that's easier. But there's a kind of, I think there's a certain type of skill to rebuild the old house. You know, so there's kind of like if you look at the the legacy re regions and and banks have been going for a while and they have they have lots of systems integration and stuff built up and bought and developed and it it seems I'm I'm looking for that type of artistry in a way to to rebuild the old bank instead of well you know things are easier if you can start in a greenfield where nothing was there before <laughs> I think people people hope for a, an easier life when. There might be more sort of joy in, in, in ripping down the wallpaper and taking out the, the bad art text. <laughs> this is my thought. And, no, and, and, and you're right. You know, we yeah. have seen, um, as, as you were saying, right, that organizations have looked at, do I want to rebuild my existing monolithic architectures mm. and applications? Or do I, you know, start a completely new digital bank and take advantage of all this cloud native stuff? And we're, we're again, with all these things, it's, it's a little bit, of a balancing act that we're seeing. So the organizations that have much of this legacy um, application infrastructure, it, it works, right? I mean, mm. it's processing billions of transactions. It's highly reliable. They're moving to the cloud. There's some risk sometimes you're trying to transition that. And so we're seeing clients take much more of a uh, approach where they're like, well, it's not broken, so I'm not going to throw it out. But how do I bring the latest technologies in to be able to work with this older technology? And, and we're seeing things with um, AI, for example, is being used now to take you know, historic um, COBOL code mm -hmm. in running on mainframes and rewrite it into Java so that developers today can you know, use it. And that's not been uh, that, mm -hmm. that COBOL's bad. It's just that people have been saying, Oh, you know, I'm, I'm running, you know, people that understand it and know how it works. Yeah, I think uh, there's about 12, 12 guys in their 70s who know how to program exactly. globally. Right. <laughs> but, but, there's, but there's this type of thing going, a lot more of it's going on there. So people are going, okay, well, you know, that, that works. And, you know, the, the mainframe's still um, getting released and is modern and works and is you know, highly rely, reliable and available. So uh, they're working out how they, they bring this modern technology and work it combine it with some of the, the, the more, I guess, traditional or classic technology, if you want. And so we are seeing much more of this hybrid um, operation, which, and, and it's often less risky and less costly, and you get to value faster because it's not always about, hey, I just want to be mm. on the cloud or the latest tech. It's how do I, how do I use the, yeah, and make the most of what I've got to mm. deliver the most value to the client. Yeah, efficiency. Efficiency is king. So we're going to stay on the banker site because we have another set of awards. We have our annual Transaction Banking Awards. So uh, as well, even though the Transaction Banking Awards look at a lot of the products banks offer in cash, liquidity, and sustainability needs, um, digital transformation uh, was also a, a, a big a big factor in a lot of the entries. And a lot offering white-labeled as-a-service offerings figured highly in a lot of the um, winning entries, transaction banking as a service, as well as the proliferation of available open application programming inf interfaces, allowing corporate clients more control and flexibility to use bank technology to solve proprietary problems. So our, our global winner for Transaction Bank of the Year was HSBC. Uh, we also have uh, Africa, Latin America, Middle East, 
and different categories like cash management and payments. Our winner for payments was Unicredit. And if you would like to know all the winners, you need to go to thebanker.com. And we will be handing out trophies to the winners of the Transaction Banking Awards at our booth at Cybos in Toronto on the Tuesday, day two. So that will be September 19th at 4 o'clock. And there will be fizz and nibbles for people who are there. So, I mean, I've got a question for you. I mean, embedded finance is is a huge topic all over, not just in transaction banking, um, with this, you know, as banking as a service offerings, and they're growing steadily. Um, and so of course, that means, you know, we're looking at more cloud and cloud-based uh, technologies. So we've seen from the Transaction Banking Awards that these technologies are increasingly impacting product offerings and, and business models. It's how big a wave of disruption are we expecting with all of this? We've been talking about this for a while, but I think you are going to see this disruption accelerate. And if you, if, if I can call upon your visualization skills for a moment, mm. um, just to illustrate this, if you think about a, a four-tier pyramid in the old days, the bottom layer of this pyramid was where, you know, where most of the focus and spend was. And this was the infrastructure layer. And then you had the next layer up, which was your data or systems or records. And then the layer up above that was your products and then your front office or customers and channel, which was often where the least focus and least spend was. And what's happened or what is happening is that pyramid's been inverted. So the customer experience is king and driving things like embedded finance to remove friction and banking as a service. And the products and data layers now being infused with AI to make things like contextual banking possible. And the infrastructure layer is the thinnest of all of these now because of cloud and, and hybrid cloud. So cloud's provided this agility and productivity, freeing up time to focus on these other things. And now with AI and especially generative AI, it's impacting these data and product layers by allowing you to link up data and, and rapidly gain insights um, you know, to deliver better customer experiences. So I've, I've sort of felt, you know, people have spoken about this for a while and they've been focused on the cloud area. I think now as generative AI um, sort of starts to mature. We're gonna mm. we're gonna see that middle layer um, start to accelerate, and so combined, I think you're gonna see an overall acceleration. And again, you know, these areas we've been talking about and focused on with hybrid cloud and and Red Hat and and other things that you know, through our acquisition. So um, I think you are gonna see an acceleration because that maturation of both of these technologies, you know, um, intersecting is gonna allow us to do that but it, it does you know require us to get to that level of maturity which i think is still a little bit at an early early stage mm. i mean i always i mean it's interesting i always sometimes people object to this but i i mean i remember it wasn't that long ago that you could barely mention the word cloud to an it person at a bank they would kind of get all anxious and now things have like switched so quickly and i'm just you know so i i, I agree with you i think we're going to see this massive acceleration of this now that now that cloud is now mainstream and not not kind of this uh, shiny new technology it's it's uh, many people that work at banks are very um uh, you know are accepting accepting mod modernization and progress like many other industries yeah it's, exactly as you say right i mean i remember when um because i came from the banking industry and we were started on what the organization prior to joining IBM, we started on our cloud journey back in 2015. And as you say, it was all very like, oh, you know, we've got to be careful and mm. we've got to <laughs> take our time. And, and, and they did, you know, yeah. and they did a good job, but it was it was very new. And, and some of the um, people in the, the traditional infrastructure organizations were very wary, you know, what it's going to mean. And like, you know, is my job going to be at risk and things like that. But you know, I think they've seen, again, it's not like one or 
uh, another thing. It's not like one is good and one is bad type of thing. And people are, I said, very much ending up in this hybrid world where they're they're seeing there's some stuff which is really great and works on premises. There's stuff that works on this cloud. Other stuff works better on a different cloud. So they're ending up in this, you know, very much on-prem and a multi-cloud world. And I think, it, as you said, I think it's becoming much more accepted. In the recent survey we did, I think asking C-suite execs what their view was around their strategy, it was like the predominant view was it's it's you know it's a hybrid multi-cloud strategy. Very few were like saying it's just even one cloud or or on-prem. So I think it's just become the norm now, exactly as you say. Mm. Interesting. So we're going to continue talking about technology, but I wanted to um, uh, highlight our September cover story, which was written by John Ebrington. So this is Solving the Correspondent Banking Woes. So while AI solutions and ISO 2022's rollout have offered some relief, the challenges to correspondent banking remain acute in an era of ever greater de-risking. So um, there's a quote, 20 years ago, correspondent banking was a widespread activity, even among smaller banks, because the compliance requirements were far lower, says Alex Silver, managing director of Stern International Bank in Puerto Rico. So nowadays, it is far harder for banks to justify, given the higher risk profile and the greater costs involved. Even for the larger bank, they're going to be customers they can't service because of their revenue requirements and risk appetites. And it was interesting. I was reading this story, and a story in uh, the FT caught my eye, which was Chinese lenders extend billions of dollars to Russian banks after Western sanctions. I know that after a lot of the sanctions were uh, brought down after Russia invaded Ukraine, it caused um, a lot of a lot of uh, organizational uh, and uh, issues with a lot of banks. But the Beijing is pushing the renminbi to be an alternative global currency to the dollar. So although this uh, is a correspondent banking story, I kind of wanted to bring this question back to technology a bit because John talks a little bit about uh, technology solutions. And, and you, we've talked a bit on the podcast here about um, uh, the growth of AI and a lot of startups in AI. Um, but are banks, I mean, are banks being conservative about their rollout of, 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 of using data with AI models and and could could AI kind of assist with issues mentioned in these types of correspondent banking problems, or where where do you see the nuanced and problems coming in mm. the future with this? What what is, what is your view? Banks' risk appetites, as as you say, have changed. You know, especially mm. given global events and this increased scrutiny around things like KYC or, or know your client and anti money laundering. Um, in terms of the issues you've raised, I, you know, I can see how AI can can help. Right, so. Mm. When it comes to assessing fraud or understanding financial flows rapidly to see if if some organization or geo you don't want to be to find um, out if you are exposed to a Russian bank or not. I know that's a lot of banks had issues with that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's this, you know, this ability to take large amounts of data, analyze it very quickly and and to, to do things in, in real time. So I can definitely see a use for it. Um, but as you say, banks, the ones that we've been talking to are being very, very conservative about um, how they um, are using or how they're going to implement the use of AI. Um, and they're concerned about things like trust. You know, how do you ensure its um, decisions if you're using AI free of bias and hallucinations? Um, they're concerned about how targeted it is. Some of the large language models have been trained on you know, data sets from the internet, which is mm. both good and, <laughs> and bad data, as we know. Mm. You know, and um, there's also this explainability factor. So, you know, if you're going to use it to make loan or credit card 
decisions. You need to be able to explain to your regulators, you know, how you decided on that. And we've, you know, we've seen issues where bias has been introduced and it started to do some weird, mm. weird things. And then to your point, it's, you know, there's concerns about data privacy. How can you ensure your data is not being absorbed as part of the model? And this data is a, you know, it's a key differentiator. So, um, and, you know, I think many of the, the models out there today are consumer models. And some of what we've been focused on is really um, how do you build an enterprise grade AI mm. solution? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, you know, things like what we've done is worked on expanding what's an X. So, you know, it's it's trusted because we filter out the issues around copyright and bias. It's very targeted because it's trained on financial services data. And the analogy we use is, um, you know, if you have a problem, you know, be it a medical one or whatever, do you, do you go to the the uh, you know the the guy who's great at quizzes in the uh, you know down the pub and who has a good general knowledge or do you go to a specialist or a doctor you know mm. someone who has a very deep understanding in a particular area and that's I think important and then you know the final couple of things is just the, the fact that it's explainable um, and yeah. you're able to yeah. see how you got to the answer so I think all of these things are really important to to solve for and as we do that I think the bank's adoption will will increase but you know as, as you said it's in the hype cycle and I think we're starting to come out of that a little bit as people understand what this can truly do and how do they implement it in, in a regulated industry like financial mm -hmm. services. I mean, I think that explainability is a big issue for you. When it, for me, um, you know, whenever I see AI stories in like sort of the general press about not necessarily about financial services, sometimes you get um, people saying, well, we don't know how it came up with this answer. And <laughs> of course, I mean, I don't think you should do that for any industry, but financial services, I mean, why, why is it so hard to explain it at times shouldn't it shouldn't you understand how that sort of decision process was made absolutely and mm. i'd say that's that's one of the things that you know we've been focused on is mm. just being able to show you all of the references and how it was if it came up with a particular answer how mm. it picked certain data elements from certain references to be able to do that i think it's because often that the models have been used today because they've been that they've been more developed for the consumer market mm. um there's been less need to to do that so i think this it it's lacking some of this i still want to know as a consumer i still <laughs> i want to be explained yes <laughs> yeah no no as, as a you know in an enterprise environment absolutely it's an absolute mm -hmm. need and, and something you have to have all right excellent so we've got our final story of the podcast which was which is a debate that's been raging ever since the end of the pandemic and which is uh, should we still work from home? So this is from the FT. Uh, UK banks tighten up on work from home. So Lloyd's Banking Group is launching a charm offensive, including free food to win over staff required to spend at least two days a week in the office. We at the FT, they did that as well last year with some free food. Uh, last month, uh, US Bank City told UK workers it should start. It will start checking when they attend the office at least three days a week. Um, and Goldman Sachs Chief, Chief Executive David Thalman once described homeworking as an aberration and asked staff to come in since lockdown measures were loosened two years ago. Um, it was very interesting because we had some issues before the podcast with Zoom because um, I wanted to know where where do you stand? Is it uh, are you an office person, a non-office person? I mean, I think sometimes it's the commute that people are bothered by, mm. not necessarily the office. So what's more annoying, the commute or a Zoom that doesn't work? <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah, when you're talking about Zoom and issues there, I mean, you know, let's not go there. But um, the uh, I've sort of changed over time. I mean, I, I guess like everyone else after the pandemic, got sort of used to mm. working from home and you know, obviously didn't miss the, the daily commute back and forth. But um, last couple of days, just and even doing this um, podcast today, I'm, I'm in a partner's office. We've been together, like 10, 15 of us 
for the last two days and what we got done in two days would have taken weeks if we tried to do it over the video and mm. um the other day i was just in the office and people say well look i'm just doing video calls and uh why do i need to go into the office to do that but i you know i ran into people that i hadn't seen for a while and we started talking about things so i think you miss some of these serendipitous yeah. meetings when everything has to be scheduled you know every half hour or whatever over video so I, I guess I'm an advocate of being back in the office, but I, I do believe there's a balance here, right? So there's occasionally it does make sense, you know, just to to work from home, you know, from home because it's I don't know, maybe I just need some quiet time to do some thinking without getting interrupted. So on the whole, I think I'm 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 getting I'm I'm sort of leaning back to get back to the <laughs> back to the office. Yeah, yeah I'm a, I'm a hybrid person. I like being in the office when I'm here. But yeah, the southeastern rail does not fill me with joy. Mm. But hey, <laughs> wonderful. Um, thank you so much for joining me on the bank of midweek. You were a delight. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Excellent. Thank you for listening to the Banker Midweek, part of the portfolio of podcasts from the editorial team at the Banker, available on thebanker.com and wherever you get your podcast fix. Search on the Banker Podcasts to listen to more.